Have you ever wondered how children learn to speak? It's kind of fascinating. Nobody sits them down. You don't take a baby and open up a grammar textbook. Babies don't go to language school. They're not logging into Babel, learning how to speak. You don't give them lectures. There's really no formal instruction. They just seem to learn. So how do children learn to speak? Well, Russian psychologist Lev Vygotsky was very interested in this question. And so he studied the acquisition, acquisition of language among uh, children. And specifically, he was interested in how parents speak to their children in these early developmental years. And here's what he found. Parents speak to their children at slightly uh, higher levels that exceeds their level of comprehension. Parents speak to their children at a level that slightly exceeds the level of comprehension. And here's what's also fascinating about it, is that parents do this without even knowing it. I'm, I'm a parent, I have kids. No one said, hey, just so you're clear, when you have children, speak to them at levels slightly above their level of comprehension. You just kind of do it naturally. So here's how it works. As a, as a child starts to grow and as they begin to develop, uh, they start to know things, right? In these early years, uh, they, they learn so many things. But they know some things and they don't know other things. They, don't, they certainly don't know as much as their parents know, despite the, the fact that they think that sometimes they know more than us. On one hand, you can't speak to them as if they're an adult. You can't speak to them at a level you would with your peers because that would overwhelm them. You'd be using vocabulary and, and expressions and things that would just go beyond them and they'd feel left out. They'd feel like they, they aren't picking up on everything that's going on. And if you're, if you're that confused and overwhelmed, it's really frustrating. Functionally, it would exclude them from the conversations happening in the home. At the same time, you can't speak to them at levels far below their level or even at their level of current comprehension because it's going to leave them undeveloped. They're not going to learn the new things that they need to learn. So without even thinking about it, we speak to children just slightly above their level of comprehension. And so inevitably, the child will understand some things that are happening in the midst of conversation. And at the same time, there'll be other things that, that they don't get. But by and large, they're able to keep up and they're, 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 they're being developed and they're able to be a, a part of what's going on in the home. And as a child's language and their comprehension levels develop, the challenge increases, right? You can't keep it the same level. You have to continue to change the horizon, so to speak, so that that challenge is always changing. Now, certainly... There will be times of confusion. They're not going to get everything. Certainly there will be times of frustration. And certainly there are times when the learner just wants everything right at their level. But a good parent, as a teacher, knows that in order for the child to grow, they have to be stretched. They have to be challenged. Yes, there's a horizon. But a good teacher knows that the horizon has to always adjust to that next level of development. And it's actually in the challenge, it's in the stretching, the, the, this active involvement of the teacher that keeps the developmental process moving forward. Vokotsky called this the zone of proximal development. 
And I think it's a powerful metaphor for how the Christian life works. See, as God's children, he draws near to us and he wants to challenge us and guide us and encourage us and develop us. He's with us. He's for us. He's actually more for our development and growth than we are. And in order to stretch us, in order to develop us, he will lovingly lead us through challenges and difficulties. And yes, even affliction and suffering. His goal is not to break us, but to mold us, to stretch us, to challenge us, to shape us for our good. So this morning, as we continue in Genesis 41, we're going to see Joseph not merely redeemed out of his affliction. That's normally our prayer. That's normally our cry. Once we are in these seasons of affliction or suffering, our prayer is, Lord, deliver me out of this. There are things happening in my life that I don't want to experience right now. So if you would, take me out of it. And that's certainly a fine and good prayer. But often the answer to those prayers is not merely just deliverance out of, but redemption in the affliction. God is doing something in the affliction. In other words, what we're going to see this morning in Genesis 41 is God is going to use the affliction that Joseph has faced for his good. Like a parent who's carefully attuned to his child with a desire to see him grow, God shapes and leads us through our afflictions for our good. And so we've been looking at this, this life of Joseph over the last several weeks, and it's, it's really been a, a, a lecture series on suffering and affliction. We've been able to look at it from these different vantage points. And what I would love is if our church came to challenge our current impulses on suffering, what if we flipped the script on suffering? What if we started to, with the eyes of faith, trust that God is actually a good And loving parent, that he knows what he's doing. And that he's using these present moments affliction for our good. What if, instead of seeing our suffering as meaningless or the, or the pointless aim of a blind, uncaring universe. What if, with the eyes of faith, we came to see that not only will God and does God redeem us out of our suffering. But what if he provides redemption in our suffering. And I think one of the reasons why the Bible gives us stories is that we can enter into the story. We can look at these characters. We can see what they're going through. We can experience them and their feelings and their emotions in a way that's not like we're not actually going through it. But we can go through their experience. And I think the reason why the Bible gives us these stories is that if we can enter in and see God's loving hand in their life, from our vantage point in history, then that teaches our hearts to live by faith so that we can trust the Lord to do the very same thing in our lives. If God was faithful to redeem Joseph's suffering and to use it for good in his life and to deliver him out of it, maybe our hearts can believe that he'll do the same thing in our lives. So here's where we're going this morning. In Genesis 41, we want to ask, how does God redeem our affliction? And I've chosen those words carefully. Not just how does God redeem us out of suffering. 
But how does God enter into the suffering and to use it for our good? How does he redeem it? How does he make it? How does he take what's bad and turn it into something good? So there's going to be four points in our sermon this morning. First, we're going to see that God redeems our affliction by this proven character through affliction. In other words, character is forged in the school of affliction. And second, we'll see purposeful sovereignty over affliction. See, if you believe that God is sovereign over every detail of human history and all uh, his purposes for your life and human history will be accomplished. Meaning, if God is sovereign over affliction, the affliction isn't sovereign over God. So he has control over it. That's why he can use it for your good. It's not, nothing's outside of his hand. Third, we'll see sustaining grace in affliction. We're never alone in our affliction. God is with us and he's for us and he provides sustaining grace to get us through that affliction. And finally, we'll see merciful salvation from affliction. Ultimately, at the right time, God will deliver us from our affliction. Four points again. Proven character through affliction. Purposeful sovereignty over affliction. Sustaining grace in affliction. And merciful salvation from affliction. Let's begin together in verse 1. Here again the word of the Lord. After two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. And behold, there came up out of the Nile seven cows, attractive and plump, and they fed in the reed grass. Behold, seven other cows, ugly and thin, came up out of the Nile after them and stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly, thin cows ate up the seven attractive, plump cows. And Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep. And he dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain, plump and good, were growing on one stalk. And behold, after them sprouted seven ears, thin and blighted by the east wind. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump, full ears. And Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. So in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all its wise men. Pharaoh told them the dreams, that there was none who could interpret them to Pharaoh. So in verse 1, we find that it's been two years. Two years have gone by since Joseph had interpreted the cupbearer and the baker's dream. So two years have gone by between chapter 40 and chapter 41. Two whole years of being forgotten in prison. And what changes in this story is that Pharaoh has a pair of dreams. The first dream, he's he's standing by the Nile and seven plump, well-fed cows come up out of the water. Now so far, so good. This is a good dream. This would have been a common scene if you were standing on the, 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 the riverbanks in Egypt. Cows would routinely go down into the Nile, often wading into the water up to their neck in order to get reprieve from the hot sun. And then they would come up out of the Nile to feed. But then the dream takes a turn. Following those seven well-fed cows come seven emaciated, malnourished cows. And they cannibalize the well-fed cows. Now, that would probably wake you up as well. Pharaoh, he's disturbed by that, but he eventually goes back to sleep. And there's a second dream. Pharaoh sees seven plump, good ears of corn growing on one healthy, richly producing stalk. Now, that's a good 
ear, that, that, that's a healthy grain of corn. I mean, that, on one stalk, for there to be seven ears, that, that, that's a good yield on one stalk. But then a second set of ears sprout on the same stalk, and they're thin, and they're beat up by this eastern hot wind, and these seven beat-up ears of corn consume the healthy ears of corn. Again, it disturbs Pharaoh. He wakes up from his sleep and, he, and he's very uh, deeply troubled. Have you ever had one of those dreams where you wake up and you just, you're deeply troubled? Maybe you, you wake up in a hot sweat, right? And you're, 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 you're kind of discombobulated and trying to figure out what's going on. You're, you're still in that state of trying to figure out what is real and, and what is not. And you're kind of talking yourself out of, okay, this, that, that wasn't real, that wasn't true. Right? He's having one of those dreams that just sort of stays with you. And the Bible says it troubles his spirit. Now this isn't casual curiosity. He's not going, man, I, I wonder what those things mean. Could it be significant? Could it not be? Right? He is determined to figure out what is going on with these dreams. So he, he gathers his best advisors to help interpret these dreams. He knows they have significance and he's deeply troubled. And you can imagine why. I mean, for, for starters... It's just bizarre, and it's graphic what's happening in these dreams. You've got cows eating other cows. You've got corn eating other ears of corn. These are things that don't normally happen. And second, these aren't trivial images. Maybe they don't mean a whole lot to you and me, but to Pharaoh, these are all significant symbols. The Nile River was the source of Egypt's strength, and, and cow and grain provides sustenance and, and, and sustainability. And he's seeing these things. There, there's something going on with those. And he's thinking if those are going to be affected, that's a big deal. They even had gods associated with the Nile and with cows and with the harvest. And so it's all wrapped up in his livelihood and in their religion. And third, in Egypt, dreams were a really big deal. We've recovered these documents in ancient Egypt on dream interpretation. There were these schools where you could go to be trained in dream interpretation. And so Pharaoh would have had the best of the best of dream interpreters at his disposal. But what? None of them could interpret these dreams. Commentator Arthur Pink writes this. The magicians were impotent. The wise men displayed their ignorance. And Pharaoh was made to feel the powerlessness of all human resources and the worthlessness of all human wisdom. This is a man who is not accustomed to feeling powerless. This is a man who is not accustomed to feeling like he's in a bind. He's one of the most powerful men living at that time. Like he's easily in the top ten of the most powerful people in the world. And in verses 9 to 13, we find that the cupbearer finally remembers Joseph from two years ago. Now, I don't think the cupbearer forgot him like I forget where I put my keys all the time. It wasn't like, Joseph, yes, that guy. I mean, this, Joseph has played a significant role in his life, helped him get out of prison, helped him figure out what was going on with these dreams. He didn't forget him. It's, it, usually when someone is forgotten like that, it's that they're not considered important. Who is this no-name Hebrew slave anyway? He has no interest in helping Joseph promote himself. He wants to look good for Pharaoh. He's looking out for his own interest. But at this moment, the magicians have failed. The advisors have failed. 
Pharaoh is in a troubled state and he has the opportunity to go, wait a minute, I can help the Pharaoh. I can be the guy who delivers the guy who interprets the dream. Pharaoh would certainly be grateful to him for that. And we pick up the story back in verse 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph. And they quickly brought him in out of the pit. When he had shaved himself, changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there's no one who can interpret it. I've heard it said of you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Now I want to slow down here and really consider what's happening in the scene. So the cupbearer tells Pharaoh that some no-name Hebrew slave in his prison has an acute ability to uh, interpret dreams. And, uh, you know, he, uh, the, the, the scene starts to, to move very quickly. Pharaoh wastes no time in getting Joseph summoned from prison. If you notice, he's shaved, he's changed. It's like a TLC-level prison makeover. Okay, And Joseph comes up and he's presented before uh, uh, one of the most powerful men in all of Egypt. Arguably one of the most powerful men living in the world at the time. Remember, Pharaoh's troubled. He's desperate. He's looking for answers. He's looking to Joseph. It's his one shred of hope. Think of the opportunity for Joseph. Think of all that he's gone through. Being betrayed by his brothers, being beaten, thrown into a pit, then only to be pulled out of it, to be sold into um, slavery, then to go into Potiphar's house. Think he's, 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 he's up and coming in the world only to be falsely accused and, and sent back down. He has this moment where he thinks, okay, this really important guy in Pharaoh's court is going to remember me. And then two years have gone by and he's been forgotten. Thirteen years of affliction and suffering. And now he's standing in front of one of the most powerful men in the world. And he's, this man is desperate looking to you for answers. For the first time in 13 years, Joseph has the upper hand. Joseph could actually make some demands. He's, he's, he's in the position of power to negotiate with a guy who can make things happen. He can ensure that his future prospers and what are his first words to pharaoh it is not in me that phrase that takes us five words to translate is one hebrew word and if you were to translate it very literally it would say not me joseph's first words to pharaoh are not me it's not me or another way you could translate it is i can't When you smooth out that translation, what Joseph is basically saying, Pharaoh, you're looking to me like I'm indispensable, but I'm not the indispensable one. You're looking at me if, as if I hold the keys to your future. You're looking at me as if I have this power within me to interpret your dreams. And he says, you're looking at the wrong guy. It's not me, it's God. He will interpret your dreams. He will take the chaos that you feel right now and he will make the way forward plain. See, after years of suffering and affliction, after these two most recent years of waiting to be remembered in prison, Joseph has learned not to put his hope in man, either in himself or in Pharaoh. So the difficulties that Joseph have, have faced since he was 17 years old 
have produced in him the character that he needs for this moment. You notice Pharaoh, uh, uh, Joseph before Pharaoh, he's not self-promoting. He's humble. You can imagine there would have been this temptation to take credit for this ability, this God-given ability to interpret dreams. Think about it. Pharaoh has the power to lift him up, to send him back to prison. This is his one shot to get out of the pit. And where does Joseph put his confidence and trust? He puts it in the Lord. So it begs the question, what enables Joseph to say to Pharaoh, don't look to me, look to God? What enables Joseph to resist the temptation to take credit for his ability to interpret dreams? What enables Joseph to tell tell Pharaoh the truth about the whole matter? I mean, Joseph has the opportunity to make Pharaoh think he's indispensable. Joseph's ability to interpret dreams is clearly a God-given gift, but Pharaoh doesn't know that. He doesn't need to know. Pharaoh doesn't need to know that that ability has come from God. All that matters to Pharaoh is that he's able to interpret the dreams and tell him how to react to those dreams. So what enables Pharaoh, or Joseph rather, to proclaim the glory of his God in the face of Pharaoh and his advisors? And the answer is proven character learned and forged in the school of affliction. See, I think Genesis 41 is a picture of what is principally taught in Romans chapter 5. Look at what Paul says, Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, Paul says there's a reason why we can rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, why? Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And James 1, 2 through 4, count it all joy, my brothers. James is saying you can count suffering as joy. Why? When you meet trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, Lacking in nothing. These are some verses in the Bible that you have just got to memorize. You've got to meditate on. You've got to get them deep down into the recesses of your heart. They need to be there while you're going through suffering so that they bubble up. That, they, that, that those truths come up while you're going through suffering so that you're reminded of this gospel truth. That proven character is forged through affliction. My brother and sister, do you see it? Over and over again, the Bible teaches in stories and it teaches in principle that suffering is never pointless. It's not. It's not pointless. It's not meaningless. It's always actually an opportunity for rejoicing because the Lord will use it to produce in you that which could not be produced otherwise. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's even desirable in the moment. But what I'm saying is it's not meaningless. It's not pointless. It's the zone of proximal development. Do you see what God is doing? The testing of our faith is meant to bring out maturity and completion. God is just ahead of us. 
He's allowing us to go through things that just slightly exceed our ability. That's why we feel confused sometimes. That's why we feel frustrated at times. That's why it feels like a challenge because it is. But it's not beyond what you can bear. And God is the one who is lovingly bringing you through it for your good so that your character is forged. It's the challenge that produces steadfastness and endurance. You don't get it any other way. It's the school of affliction where our character is forged. Can you see it in Joseph's life? Have you seen it in his life as we've seen him from chapter 37? And if you can see it in his life, then can we with the eyes of faith trust that the same God who brought Joseph through these afflictions, who who was present in his life and used them to forge his character, can we with the eyes of faith trust that God will do the same with us? That's his grace to lovingly lead us where we might never go in order to produce in us that which we need. God redeems our affliction by using it, not to break us, not to play games with us, but to forge in us proven character. That's our first point. And here's the second. God redeems our affliction because of his purposeful sovereignty over affliction. After Pharaoh recounts his dreams to Joseph, we'll pick up the story back up in verse 25. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years and the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years and the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them will arise seven years of famine and the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow for it will be very severe. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams means that these things are fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. Two times in Joseph's interpretation of the dreams, he tells them that these dreams are from God. And they're meant to reveal to Pharaoh what he's about to do. And four times in what I just read, he tells Pharaoh that God is the one bringing these events to reality. It's really hard to miss the providence and sovereignty of God here. God has revealed this. God has revealed what he is about to do. He will bring this about. It is fixed by God. These things are going to happen. Guess what, Pharaoh? There's nothing you can do about it. It is going to happen. Now, God is not merely just giving Pharaoh a heads up. More than that, he is telling him that he is the one who is orchestrating the details of history to bring about his purposeful, sovereign plan. In other words, God is moving. It's non-negotiable. It's fixed by God. Now, we're meant to look at this and realize that these dreams Pharaoh had are not by coincidence or by accident. None of the dreams, in fact, in all of this whole story, right? There's two dreams with Joseph. Then there's the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker. None of these dreams are just coincidental. Like they happen to have these dreams. God is the one moving and shaping and directing this story. But now God's time had come for Joseph to be delivered from prison. See, the cupbearer may have forgotten 
Joseph, but God has not forgotten him. And at the right time, he gives these dreams to Pharaoh and ensures that no one is able to interpret it except for Joseph. And he's done so because it's time for Joseph to rise. It's time for him to be given a position of responsibility to ensure that not only will Egypt survive the famine, but for God's people to have a place where they can grow and thrive for the next stage of God's redemptive history. See, all of these dreams, everything happening, is ordained by God to accomplish his purposes. In the next few verses... What are we going to find? Pharaoh is going to promote Joseph. He's going to basically tell him, you're like the vice Pharaoh. You're in charge of everything. I'm going to sit back here, let you run the show. He's going to move from the position of a convicted slave to second in command of all of, of Egypt. He is going to put a level of confidence and trust and responsibility in a no-name Hebrew slave. Now what on earth would possess this pagan Egyptian, to give Joseph all this authority, all of this power. Acts 7, Stephen says, the reason that Pharaoh did this is because God gave Joseph favor with Pharaoh. Look what Stephen says in Acts 7. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh king of Egypt who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. So Pharaoh gave him all this power, but who gave him favor? It was the Lord. See, the Lord is in every single detail. Psalm 105, 16 to 17. You got this little mini history of Israel. And in Psalm 105, the psalmist says, when God summoned a famine on the land, who brought the famine? God. He can just summon a famine at will. And he broke the supply of bread he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. God is sovereign. He is purposeful. He is the one superintending and orchestrating every single detail. And he sent Joseph ahead of the famine to ensure that Egypt would survive and that Israel would grow into a mighty nation. Now, I'm not going to belabor this point of God's providence. Pastor Kevin preached a whole sermon on it last week, so I won't belabor the point. But in one sense, you could actually preach about the providence and sovereignty of God from every chapter in Joseph's story and really every chapter of the Bible. His providence and sovereign hand is on every single page of the Bible. Nothing happens outside of the sovereign purposes of God. We borrowed this definition from John Piper. We think it's excellent on the providence of God. So here's how he writes it. The providence of God is his purposeful sovereignty if you remember only two words about providence purposeful sovereignty it captures it all purposeful sovereignty by which he he will be completely successful in the achievement of his ultimate goal for the universe friends every detail every movement regardless of how significant you think it might be falls under the sovereign purposes of god everything all of it works towards his ultimate goal regardless of how much we're attuned to what he's doing even though the cupbearer forgot about joseph god hadn't forgotten about joseph in fact the cupbearer's forgetfulness the cupbearer's uh, seemingly insignificance towards joseph is actually another one of the purposes of a sovereign god so that joseph would would come to mind at just the right moment 
God wanted Joseph to appear to Pharaoh on this day, not two years ago. You see how that works? Everything is working out exactly as God has planned, regardless of our ability to put together the how and the why questions. Now it's fine. I'm a how and why person. I have lots of questions about how these things work together. But our inability to answer all those questions does not diminish God's sovereignty. These are great questions to ponder and to consider. And it's certainly worth considering how does God's sovereignty and how does human responsibility all work together. It's, it's important to consider how do our everyday decisions interact with God's sovereign purposes. All of those things are really good questions to ask. But it's important not to tip the scale on one side towards fatalism. That means our decisions don't matter. To think that what we do doesn't matter. Or to go on this other end and go, well, I know it feels like I'm making free and good decisions, so maybe God isn't as sovereign. we got to avoid these two extremes and realize somehow, in a way that is beyond our level of comprehension, God is sovereign and purposeful over every fabric of, of human history, over every detail, over every decision, both big and small. And yet, we make real consequential decisions all the time. We don't have to have all the answers of how and why figured out. In one sense, we should expect that there's a mystery, that there's an unsearchability, an unfathomable, unfathomableness to the reality of God. Right? He's beyond us. So of course there are going to be things we can't figure out. How does this fit into God redeeming our affliction? Simple. God can redeem and use our affliction and suffering because he is purposeful and sovereign over everything, including our affliction. They are not over him. He is over them. See, if God isn't purposeful and sovereign over our afflictions, then we got bad news here, guys. Because it means if God isn't sovereign over our affliction, then when you go through affliction, it's up to you to figure out how to make meaning out of it. It's up to you to figure out how you're going to get out of it. You get that, right? If there's no God, or if God is not sovereign, then any meaning and purpose you ascribe to your affliction is completely personally constructed and therefore ultimately meaningless in the broad scheme of things. And you bear the weight and responsibility to figure out how you're going to get yourself out of that mess. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that pressure. God's purposeful sovereignty should be a warm blanket to us in the days of our affliction. So for those who trust in the Lord, not only are we not alone, not only is God near to the brokenhearted, but you can also trust, regardless of how you can see it working out, that God will redeem your affliction. Friends, God's sovereignty, his providence, is not theological abstraction. It is a theological anchor for your soul in the day of your distress. Friends, God redeems our afflictions. He uses them to forge our character. And he's able to work everything out for our good because he is purposefully sovereign over all of them. Let's also look to see how he provides sustaining grace in affliction. Let's pick up the story in verse 46. 
Joseph was 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven plentiful years, the earth produced abundantly. And he gathered up all the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. And before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore them to him. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my hardship in all my father's house. And the name of the second he called Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So after Joseph is elevated to vice Pharaoh, the Bible tells us that everything the Lord said came to pass. The years of plenty came. Joseph took his God-given administrative gifts of leadership skills and put them into action. He, he raised up these storehouses in every city so they'd have a place to store grain and eventually a place to distribute the grain in the coming years of famine. And the Bible says that the abundance of grain was like the sands of the sea. You should be thinking Genesis 12, having a progeny like the sands of the sea. The blessings that were promised to his, his forefathers are now starting to come to Joseph. And it was such that they ceased to measure it. Now think about that. Think about who the Egyptians are. They are great mathematicians. They are meticulous record keepers. And yet the increase and abundance of this fam of, 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 the, of the, uh, uh, the, 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 the harvest was such that they stopped counting it. They stopped keep, keeping record of it. And why that's significant is this. They know seven years of famine are coming and their ability to survive those coming years of famine is going to be their ability to properly ration out the grain in those seven years. And if you're going to properly ration something out, you need to know, well, how much do you have? And then how are we going to divide it among all these people? But the abundance was so much, they were like, listen, we're going to be fine. We can go seven years without food and we will be fine. That's a lot of food. And not only that, but we find that Joseph is married and he's got two sons now, Manasseh and Ephraim. Now, you got to remember in Hebrew culture, names are a big deal. You always want to slow down around names in the Old Testament. They're, they're, they're sign markers. They're, they're, they're these posts in the ground where they're saying, this is what God has done. You get these glimpses of where their faith is at in the moment when they're giving out these names. And it's also significant that Joseph gives his two sons Hebrew names. You know, his name had been changed to a, an Egyptian name. He's married an Egyptian uh, woman. And you would think it would follow that he would then name his kids Egyptian names. But it's a way for Joseph to tell everyone around him, even though I dress like an Egyptian and I might walk like an Egyptian, though I'm married to an Egyptian, though I'm in a place of power and prominence in Egypt, I am a Hebrew. I believe in the one true God. And these names give us incredible insight into the sustaining grace of God in his life. Let's look at the first one, Manasseh. Manasseh sounds like the Hebrew word, which means to forget, to forget. And Joseph explains why he named him Manasseh, because God has enabled him to forget all his hardship. In other words, God has been so near to him in the midst of his affliction and sustained him throughout his affliction that it's as if he had forgotten all the pain and hardships he's faced. Now, is he suffering from amnesia? No, he hasn't actually forgotten it, 
but, it, but, but the Lord, has, his nearness and what he's done and how he's sustained grace to him has made it like it's never happened. He's been able to move on from it. The wounds have healed. He didn't forget, but he's been healed. No one can forget what Joseph has, go, has gone through. But what he's saying is God's grace to me has been such that his presence and his love and his grace have covered over those hardships. What is he doing? He's looking back over the last 13 years with the eyes of faith. He's able now to see the hand of God in his life. He's seeing how God has redeemed it to forge his character, how he's used it to, to raise him up for this moment. And in light of all that, looking back, he's able to say, it's like I've forgotten about it. He would never have planned to go through all of that. And yet, on the other side of it, he wouldn't trade it because of who he's become because of it. You hear Christians talk like this all the time, right? They go through hard things. And if you were with them in the moment, they're like, I hate this. I, don't, I, I can't believe I'm going through this, right? But give it enough time. What happens? When we've come through it, we go, you know what? I never would have wanted to go through it. I wouldn't wish that on anybody. But in an odd way, I wouldn't change any of it. Have you ever said something like that? Have you ever gone through difficulties and on the other side said things like that? Those are the eyes of faith. That's a recognition that God has done something in you which couldn't have happened otherwise. And his second son, Ephraim, sounds like the Hebrew word for fruitful. And Joseph explains why he named him Ephraim. For God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Again, this is another signpost of God's sustaining grace. See, in this instance, God's grace wasn't to keep him from suffering or even to take him out of it prematurely. God's grace to him was to make him fruitful in it. I think it's so significant that he says God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. See, there's a kind of fruit that is only produced in the land of affliction. And if you want the kind of fruit that comes from that, you have to go through that affliction. Couldn't have happened otherwise. Do you see what Joseph is doing here in the naming of his son? He is looking at his circumstances in light of God's character and presence in his life. Instead of judging God's character and presence in his life based on his circumstances. Now that's not just like a clever turn on words. The difference between those two things is critical. It's critical. When you're going through those hardships, when you're going through those sufferings, you need to judge your circumstances by God's character. Don't let your circumstances put God on the dock. Don't let your circumstances put God in the judgment seat. See, these eyes, the, the, the eyes of faith have allowed Joseph to come out of his hardships with proven character in a tender heart instead of coming out of his affliction with a hardened heart and a mission of revenge, which if you know the rest of the story is going to become really critical. Because hardship can either uh, make you hardened and vengeful and really a shell of a person. Or it can make you compassionate, can make you sympathetic, can make, it can really forge the, the, more, the, the more beautiful sides of, of character. So what about you? With the eyes of faith, do you see... God's nearness and sustaining grace in the land of your affliction? 
If not, be patient. If you don't see it, if it's not immediately present to you, be patient. Again, Arthur Pink is helpful here. Listen to what he says. That all things work together to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose, is writ large across our lesson. You know that verse in Romans, that all things work together for the good of those who love him. And he's saying, and well for us if we take that to heart. But the trouble is, we grow so impatient under the process, while God is taking the tangled threads of our lives and making them work together for good, we become so occupied with present circumstances that hope is no longer exercised and the brighter and better future is blotted from our view. See, it's not that the better and brighter future isn't coming. It's that we get so inundated with the present circumstances that we can't see it. Now, I get it. Sometimes it takes getting on the other side of our affliction before we can see all of that. But this is where we hold fast to the confession of our hope to go, even when I can't see it, I'm going to believe that God is faithful. That's what faith is, right? Believing what our eyes can't yet see. I'm going to have faith that God is going to bring me through and there is a brighter and better future on the other side. Even when you can't see what God is doing, trust his good character and promises. So we've seen that God redeems our afflictions by forging our character. And he's able to do so because he's purposely sovereign over them. And he sustains us with his grace in our affliction. Now finally, let's look at our last point to see that God eventually redeems us out of our affliction. 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. And there was famine in all the lands, but in the land of Egypt there was bread. When all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. What he says, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. So at the end of the chapter, God's word proves true. Seven years of plenty come and they're abundant and it's followed by seven years of famine, not just in Egypt, but in all of the land. The whole region experiences this famine and, and, and there's no bread, no grain anywhere and everyone starts to flood in to Egypt. And because of God's intervention, Egypt was well prepared not only for people to survive in Egypt, but for the whole region to survive. And when people came to Pharaoh crying out for bread, what did Pharaoh say? Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. Go to Joseph. And what we see here is that not only does God mercifully, mercifully provide physical salvation for Joseph, but through Joseph, what does he do? He provides physical salvation for all the land. When the famine hit, Joseph opened up. The storehouses so that all the earth could buy grain. See, in the fullness of time, God's plan was to prepare Joseph for this moment, for this purpose. You could say it like this, that Joseph was God's chosen deliverer. His chosen salvation for the land. So that in Joseph, there might be bread. That in Joseph, there might be life. When we get to the end of this chapter, when the famine strikes the land, there is only one place to go for bread. There's only one place to go for life. In that sense, Joseph had become the hope of the world. Everyone 
has to go to Joseph or else they will starve and die. Do you see what's happening right here in Genesis 41? Joseph is preparing us to long for the greater Joseph. That there might be one we could go to for life. There might be one that we could go to to be the hope of the world. You see, in Jesus, this greater Joseph, there is life, abundant life. You remember John, uh, Jesus said that I have come that they may have abundant life. You remember in John 6 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is the greater Joseph, God's chosen deliverer to save us from the famine of our sin. Jesus is the true hope of the world. He's the one place to go for life. When we cry out for deliverance, the Bible tells us, go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. Everyone has to go to Jesus or else they will starve to death. This passage is pointing us forward to Jesus. Like Pharaoh said, go to Joseph. The gospel tells us today, go to the greater Joseph for bread and life. And as we close, I ask you, have you come to Jesus? Have you gone to the greater Joseph for, the, for true bread, for true life? Have you come to that point in your life where you say, give me Jesus or else I starve. Give me Jesus or else I die. Without Jesus, I am famished. Friends, the beauty of his bread is that it comes without cost. His bread comes without performance or pretense. The only cost is nothing, and the only need you have is need. You just have to come hungry with a desire to be satisfied. Come with empty hands and a hungry spirit, and you will have the bread of life. Let's pray.